Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome the prophet of tea, James Norwood Pratt. And today we're going to be discussing one of his new books, The New Tea Lover's Treasury, The Classic True Story of Tea. Everybody should get this book. This was such an interesting book in terms of its history, the context in which the history took place, and it makes it accessible to people that really don't understand it but enjoy tea. Even for people that do not drink tea, you will enjoy this book. James Norwood Pratt has also produced and written The Wine Bibers Bible and a brand new book called The Tea Dictionary. Ladies and gentlemen, the prophet of tea, James Norwood Pratt, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you, Kim. Thank you kindly. Tea is such a fascinating subject with a long and colorful history, and the tea trade has set the scene for a great many power struggles. Most of us have very little idea about the exciting world of tea, and even the politics of tea. Talk about it. Well, it's a very interesting history. The history became worldwide just 400 years ago this very year. That was the first time anybody outside of the Far East got a first taste of tea. So our European ancestors and the rest of the world outside of Asia has only really experienced tea for the past four centuries. By the time we had our first, tea had already been known for 4,000 years in China. Grace and Roy Fong. Yes really brought you a lot of secrets about tea and a lot of education about tea. Were they your mentors? Yes, you can certainly say that. My mentors and mentors to hundreds of others. Roy and Grace opened the first traditional Chinese tea house in in North America. This would have been in 1993. What was it called? Imperial Tea Court. And you have an imperial tea court up in San Francisco, don't you? Yes, that's the one I mean. uh, They opened their doors, this first tea house, about two blocks from where I live, right here on Russian Hill. How wonderful. That means you don't have to ride a car to work. Well, that's right. I, uh, I must have been the first person to come through their doors on the day they opened, which was July the 4th, and, uh... I looked around and saw a cabinet full of teas that I never expected to see available for for sale in in the United States. I was amazed. And, of course, the two of them were amazed that there should be a round-eye white boy like me who had ever heard of these teas they had for sale. So we became fast friends on the spot, and I learned a lot, let me tell you. Did you find that you had to take up some Chinese to understand what they were saying or to understand and appreciate the nuances of the tea trade and drinking tea as a cultural ritual? Well, by the time I had spent hundreds and hundreds of hours sitting in the tea house with Grace and Roy drinking tea, I suppose I am an honorary Chinese. One of the things that was very interesting, aside from the history, which I really want to talk to you about for audiences, was that chlorinated hard water ruins the taste and the aroma of tea, that the pH needs to be a certain specific type of pH, and that TDS, or total dissolved solids, 
are very important at a certain amount, less than 30 parts per million, is going to affect the way water infuses. I bet that's true with coffee, too. What do you think? Yes, it is true. It's true with coffee, soups, all kinds of things. You'd be amazed how much flavor hard water keeps you from, uh, from registering. I did five shows on water because I've always felt there's a science to water that most of the public isn't aware of. That's how committed to understanding water I am. And I thought it was very interesting that this would be reflected in tea. Yes. Tea is, the cup of tea I'm drinking right now is probably 98, 99% water, you see. And you can't, you can't have good tasting tea if you don't start off with good tasting water. How does water temperature relate to green or black teas? Now, I know in the book you said a lot of times overboiling it or even boiling it is not good for the tea. Explain that to us. Well, black tea takes boiling water. Bring the water to a boil. Don't let it keep boiling. Just bring it to a boil and then pour it over the black tea that you mean to make. You can use water like that, boiling water, to make other kinds of tea, pu'er, oolong, as well as black. When it comes to green tea, white tea, yellow tea, these more delicate ones, why boiling water is not what you want to use. Boiling water doesn't extract the tea from inside the leaf. It cooks the leaf, you see? Yes. So you have to use water that is about 30 degrees below boiling, if it is a green tea that is very delicate. Kim, otherwise you're going to cook that leaf instead of of extracting the goodness from it. But what do we do with the type of teapots that are out there? How do we know how far to heat it? Well, I don't even make green tea in a teapot. I could make it in anything, actually. Do you use it in a gaiwan? And a gaiwan. Explain that to the public, what that is, Norwood. A gaiwan is older than a teapot. It is probably the oldest vessel for tea making that, that we know anything about. It's Chinese, of course. And the name simply means covered cup. They have a saucer and a lid that goes over this cup. And the three always operate together. So you... Put your leaf directly into the cup. You pour your water directly onto it, and uh, you steep it right before your eyes here. It's the most intimate possible relationship, you see, with the leaf. It's not covered up out of sight in a teapot. It's in a cup right before you. And you stir it, and after a minute or so, you judge that it's ready to drink, and you can either pour it off, out of the gaiwan into a pitcher or some other cup, or you can drink directly from the gaiwan itself. It's both a steeping vessel and a drinking cup. And that's how I prefer to make my green and oolong teas. How do we get those gaiwans? Do we buy them from you or order them from China? Or where do we get them? You can certainly email me and I will tell you where I get them. Uh, I'm not a merchant, you see. I'm just a writer. But uh, I think more and more tea houses and uh, tea suppliers, importers and so forth, uh, have gaiwans for sale. So this is something that was unheard of before Roy Fong introduced me to it. And 
now the word has spread, and we're not the only ones who know how to pronounce it. <laughs> You're responsible for the great renaissance of tea in the United States. Well, I'm willing to take that responsibility. It's a responsibility I share with a great many others, but it's true that when I wrote my first book on tea, there hadn't been a serious treatment of the subject in 75 years. What led you to writing about tea? Is it you walking into that tea shop in San Francisco, or was it before that? No, it was before that. This book came out 10 years or more before I walked into that tea house in San Francisco. Uh, I had written a book on wine, and I had promised my publisher a a follow-up book. And tea just appealed to me as the subject for my follow-up book, and it turned out that wine was the perfect training to understand tea. Once you know how to taste, you can taste wine, tea, or the soup that you're cooking, you see. You, you, you know what you, how to be attentive. You know how to look for the effect that it has on your taste. Well, not only that, but wine and tea are sisters under the skin. Both of these are agricultural products which, at their very best, aspire to becoming works of art. So you see, there are two things that mankind has produced over centuries and centuries of trial and error, which actually we could live without. We don't require wine or tea, either one, to sustain life. We just like the way it makes us feel and the way it tastes to us. Don't you think part of that is also the ritual involved in both? Very much so. Very much so. So tea and wine are both are both part of the mortar, part of the cement that that keeps human relationships uh, uh, together. The tea trade became fierce, it seems, in reading your book. It became a huge industry that was tightly controlled for a long time. Talk about that. Well, once the Westerners, we are the, we people from of European extraction are the Westerners, I mean. And once we discovered this, uh, this product of the Far East, which the English called far-fetched and dear-bought, which it certainly was. It took six months at least for a ship to get from China to, to Europe, bearing tea or anything else. They went crazy for tea, just as they went crazy for porcelain and silk and lacquerware. Well, tea soon outstripped all the other Asian imports. They could never get enough of it, and... There were various companies that were belonged to the con- company, the countries where they had been formed, the Dutch East India, India Company, the English East India Company. All these guys were trying to corner the market, to exercise a monopoly over this tea trade. And they were quite effective at doing so right up until the 1830s. So that was the beginning of of the trade in our our harmless tea. It amounted to uh, purchasing in Europe 
I mean, selling in Europe something that went down the drain. And you know what they bought it with in Asia, finally, when the, when they were acquiring and they were requiring huge amounts of tea every year. Was it opium? Opium. Tell the audience about that. That just stunned me between the opium and the silver transactions. Yeah, so it, it was it was quite ingenious and, of course, totally wicked and is responsible for many of the problems that we have with narcotics uh, today. It started in the late 1700s when the British realized that all they, they had nothing to trade to the Chinese. The Chinese didn't want British woolens or anything else. The British, they just wanted silver. And the word for, for silver in Chinese entered our language through the tea trade. The word's cash. We all know what cash is, and that's thanks to the tea trade. The Chinese didn't want anything but cash if you wanted to buy their tea. But the problem was China was a long way away from, from England, and anything could happen to a shipload of silver on its way to China. So it was better if you just could let the silver stay there. The way they decided to do this, Kim, was to take opium from India, which the British controlled, and allow it to be sold for cash in China. And the cash they then used to buy the tea that they were going to ship home to, uh, uh, to England. And so the silver just stayed where it was, circulating between the opium purchases and the tea purchases. No need to carry it around the world. Of course, unfortunately, this required more and more opium addicts in China, just as more and more people fell in love with tea in Europe. I think it was also interesting that the Dutch were so prominent in making tea available to Europe and were never known for that. It's not known all over the world that the Dutch were instrumental in making tea available in Europe. Isn't that interesting indeed? They somehow have been denied the credit that is due them for, well, for all the things that Holland did. When you look at the paintings of the 1600s, look at the, I, I'm a great lover of the paintings of Vermeer, and all of those interiors that he paints. You see oriental carpets. You see maps on the walls. You see women wearing satins and silks. All of these things came from, came from or had to do with uh, uh, the China trade. So a great deal of the first porcelain, the first tea, the first everything else that we experienced came through Holland. And also Russia. It was interesting to find out that in 1796, Russia was consuming over 6,000 camel loads of tea per year and over 3.5 million pounds. Russia got that tea from where? From Holland? No, no. They got it overland from China. That's where the camel came in. They got it on the border of Mongolia and China, where there was a trading post the only one that the Chinese allowed the Russians to do business in. And uh, once you had packed up your caravan, you had something like, uh, I think, 4,000 miles to trek across Siberia to get it home to Moscow. Wow. Yeah. So that was a different tea trade 
from the seaborne tea trade that went on with Holland, and first Holland, and then England and Holland and everybody else. What do you think was the prominent input that created the market for tea, the attraction to it? What do you think was the instrumental piece? How did the market get created from your view? Well, there are a lot of parallels between the original market and the present-day one. One word that should come first is health. You see, water was unsafe to drink throughout most of Europe. However, if you were going to boil that water and use it to make tea, you had just sterilized the water. And so people gradually discovered that uh, you don't get sick if you drink tea instead of just having a, a drink of water whenever you're thirsty. That was a big thing, just as health is today a big reason that Americans are finally acquiring a taste for tea. But so much of the tea that Americans are exposed to, as you relay in your book, is not the top teas, is not the best teas. I like that you explained what many of the top-level teas are. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, yes, I can. Uh, we don't want everybody to know what we have found out, Kim. There's not nearly enough of the very top-quality tea to go around. I won't tell. That's right. We, we have to, <laughs> we'll keep that between us. Uh, be, between ourselves and, and a few tens of thousands of, of would-be uh, uh, tea lovers who are new tea lovers like all of us in this country. The uh, fact is a tea bush hibernates through the winter months and then begins to wake up in the spring and starts to put out flush. That's what they call the new growth. And it is this new growth which is plucked and then manufactured into tea. Well, there are only certain months in the course of that year when the tea flush is going to be ideal. However, the bush will keep putting out leaf all year round until it's ready to go back into hibernation at the end of the following autumn. Somebody has to drink all of that tea. Let it not be thee and me, Kim. <laughs> there, are, there are large companies which sell mass market uh, super uh, mass market tea bags, and uh, this tea is is probably good enough. It's no better than it ought to be, but it seems to have satisfied millions. So. There you have it. If you, if you can content yourself with what's available in the supermarket, look no further. However, if you do look further, you find that you have entered a world unknown to people who drink the tea bag mass market product. I hear that tea bags are really not good for you, actually. To be using them is not even healthy for you. I, I doubt that. I, I think it is probably... Uh, has a lot of health benefits, even poor quality tea, but it doesn't. It doesn't benefit your taste. When, once you know how good tea truly can be, it's it's very difficult to settle for something that's less good. What do you think of that Wu Yi tea? That's the mountain range in China, in Fujian Province, 
where the very best oolongs come from. And the very best oolongs from the Wuyi Mountains are teas to drink on your knees with your hat off. Kim, this is tea to write poetry by. So that's what I think of it. I'm dying to try it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm dying to try it, so I'll be over soon. (laughs) Yes, if we we were here together, I'd be happy to share some, some of mine, but there's nobody this far away from Wui who has very much at a time, and that includes some of my importer friends. Why do you think that is? Because it's now well-known? This is tea that, for one thing, comes from mountains, so it's it's slower to grow and it's harder to harvest, and there's not as much of it. Uh, uh, that's one thing. There's never going to be a great amount of this tea. And then, too, we in the West are only beginning to discover it. And so the bulk of it is is consumed by very willing and very happy tea drinkers right there in China. Got it. Let's talk about the polyphenols and the oxidation process that's confused with fermentation. Talk a little bit about the oxidation process of tea. Well, that's what happens when you manufacture the leaf. If you take that leaf off a bush, allow it to wilt just a little bit so that it becomes soft. And that way, then you can work with it without snapping the leaf in two. Once it has softened, lost a little moisture in the sunshine by wilting, if you apply heat right then, Kim, your product is green tea. You can be drinking that dried leaf uh, uh, for, well, for lunch, when it was still on the on the bush before breakfast time. However, if you don't apply heat at that initial stage, what you do is you allow that wilted leaf to be rolled and bruised and then oxidized, what we used to call ferment. So this fermented tea, which has been uh, which has been allowed to just stay in the air after, for an hour or so after it was rolled and bruised, that leaf begins to turn brown. That's what oxidation is. If at that point you fire it, you've made black tea. I thought that was fascinating in your yes, book. Yes, and it, it came from the same it, stuff of the black tea. Isn't it amazing that you can take the same leaf off the same bush and depending on how you process that leaf, you can make it into either white tea or green tea. They have something called yellow tea that we don't really know about. You could make it into oolong or black or even pu'er tea, which we're just beginning to discover about. You like that tea, don't you? I, I like all that tea. <laughs> I confess I, uh, I wrote the, these tea books out of great love. I can tell. I can definitely tell. I'm now interested in tea on a whole different level after reading it. <laughs> no, you see, I think you and I are like most of our fellow Americans. and That's why I called it the new tea lovers treasury. We are those new tea lovers. We didn't grow up drinking teas from the Wuyi Mountains in China. We had never heard of the Wuyi Mountains in China. You see, we didn't know 
how much better great tea can be than the ordinary tea that we, uh, that our mothers served us. Well, now that Americans have begun to discover what a miracle of vegetation tea is, uh, we have become the new tea lovers of the world. You know, tea is the most popular drink uh, in, in the whole planet. Mankind consumes more tea than anything other than water. More than coffee? More than coffee. Wow. Uh, uh, and, and yet, America has been left out all of this time. It was, the secret was safe from us. We never caught on. Well, now we're beginning to catch on. When my first book on tea appeared in 1982, the entire U.S. tea market amounted to well under a half a billion dollars a year. And today, the U.S. sales of tea are about $10 billion a year. So you see, our tribe has increased. What do you think happened with Robert Fortune regarding green tea? Why did the industry turn against him? I'm not sure that... uh... Robert Fortune was the Scottish botanist that the English East India Company sent to China in the 1840s to slip inland, disguised as a Chinese. I don't have any idea how a Scotsman pulled this off, even in the 1840s, but he did. He went into the interior of China, and he came back out with, uh, uh, with a whole lot of tea plants, and seeds for tea plants, and equipment for manufacturing tea, and even some workers that he had persuaded to let him hire them and take them to India to work for him. He was the man who first discovered that green tea and black tea both come from the same plant. They previously thought these were entirely different sources, entirely different plants that produced the one and the other. Well, when Robert Fortune's employers back in England set about creating a colonial tea industry, they decided that they weren't going to make green tea. It was, they just wanted to make black tea. That way they could have one simple industrial process and they would have one product and within a generation they had persuaded all the European tea drinkers, that this was what tea was. So it was the same as America 20 years ago, when we'd never heard of green tea, much less white or oolong. So that's basically the, the effect that Robert Fortune achieved. I guess the Chinese had it out for him. They had a price on his head, you said, in the book. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. And, and he, he was obviously not only a botanist of great ability, but uh, he was obviously either a total fool or one of the bravest men of his day uh, to be doing what he was doing. He, he barely escaped with his life, it would seem. What happened to Maniram Dutta Barua? How do we pronounce it? Oh, yes. Maniram, uh, uh, Maniram Diwan. He, was, uh, he is India's great tea martyr. And he would, have, he would have been a contemporary of Robert Fortune. 
he may even have met Robert Fortune in Calcutta during that period of the 1840s, 1850s. Why did they hang him? Because he dared to enter the business that the white rulers of India had decided would be their ticket to wealth, and that was the tea industry. And Duan had property and knew all about the area of Assam, and he set himself up in tea estates just the same way the English sahibs were doing. And those English didn't like it. And so, when the opportunity arose, they, I'm afraid, it's a very... It's a very sad story, but it's but the truth is that they just arranged for him to be uh, tried on trumped-up charges and and hanged. And the government confiscated his uh, his tea estates, and they were sold at auction to for peanuts. Wow. They they were the people who bought them were the very Englishmen who had arranged for these trumped-up charges to get him killed. His family still plays a role in Assam tea today. How do they play a role today? Well, there are a lot of Baruas. That's the family name, Barua. And there were probably dozens or hundreds of Baruas in the mid-19th century. Well, now there are probably thousands or tens of thousands of Baruas, and a lot of them own a lot of land in Assam and are major producers of tea. So the English have gone, but uh, Maniram's family is still there, and they are doing what he set out to do. They are large players in the tea business. Very interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid there's a lot of skullduggery of the sort in the history of this humble leaf. Amazing, amazing amount of politics of international smuggling, huge tea wars, my God. One of the things that absolutely stunned me to learn was that between 1860 and the outbreak of World War I, 1914, the only thing, the only investment in the British Empire that made more money for you than a tea plantation was a gold mine. Wow. Yes, that that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It sounds like it's paramount to banking itself. Oh, well, that's right. Banking today would be a good uh, parallel. After all, uh, these were not small profits that that these companies stood to make or to lose. I want to talk a little bit about the inventions and the patents on tea machines. For production, the kind that William Jackson built, mm-hmm. and these rolling machines. Can you talk a little bit about them and why they helped alleviate a lot of the time to produce this tea? Yes, yes. That's that's another major chapter in this saga. All the tea in China, and in, for that matter in Japan, had always been grown by small farmers and manufactured by hand right up until the British got in the game. And the British decided that they weren't going to go that route. They didn't want to allow people that kind of independence. 
They wanted to have a plantation economy so that you would have rolling acres here and everybody would be not a small farmer, but would be working for the boss on the plantation and the only crop would be tea. And along with the plantation model of tea growing, they decided to industrialize the manufacture of the leaf. And this is where the first machines came in. Starting in the 1870s, somebody invented a machine to do the rolling. You know, I told you that's the essential stage in the manufacture of black tea, where you bruise the leaf so that it will oxidize quickly. Well, the first rolling machine, which must have gone into operation in the 1870s, on its first day, it did the work of 80 men. So you can imagine how output was enormously increased uh, by the use of these machines. So eventually you had uh, charcoal or coal-fired drying machines, and you had uh, uh, rolling machines, and, uh, and machines for just about every every step of the black tea manufacturing process. And eventually, therefore, British India took the market for tea away from China. Such that, for example, 8,000 rolling machines would be the equivalent of the use of half a million people in China. That's exactly right. Whereas it was Chinese tea that had popularized tea around the world the peak year of Chinese exports was 1886. And starting immediately thereafter, Chinese exports were smaller and smaller and smaller every year. The British simply walked away with the whole market. Do you think that's true today? No. Today we're, we're all mechanized or industrialized in one way or another. Uh, uh, and... Nobody can control the whole tea market. It's too big. India remains, alongside China, the largest producer of tea. I don't trust statistics from either place, so I don't know which one is truly bigger, but uh, they're both pretty big, and both of them produce mainly for the local market. It's the home folks who, uh, who drink most of the tea that China or India produces. I wanted to ask you about the funguses that would destroy tea plantations. How did that ever get sorted, or is that still an issue with growing tea? Well, there are certainly pests that show up at certain times of year in certain localities. But the fungus that you're thinking of, I believe, is the one that wiped out the coffee crop. This fungus ate up the roots of the coffee plants that had been growing all over Sri Lanka so that coffee just wouldn't grow there anymore. Those planters, the ones who survived, went into the tea business and created tea plantations instead of coffee plantations. This was happening, Kim, the very same decade, starting in the 1870s, the very same decade that another fungus in Europe was eating up the roots of of, uh, of the wine grapes. They 
wouldn't there wouldn't be any wine produced in Europe if they hadn't found that the wine grapes from North America were immune to this uh, to this fungus, and so they would use the the root stock from American grapes and graft European grapes onto it. And that's, that's fascinating. Do we have any wine from France or Italy? That's fascinating. I never knew that. Yeah, and, and at the same time, on the other side of the world, there was some kind of, uh, of root louse or whatever kind of bug it was that was eating up the roots of all the coffee plants in, in, uh, uh, in Sri Lanka and Indonesia. What do you think of the fact that today, though, there still are a lot of funguses in different agricultural places around the world? Do you have a concern that that may affect tea plantations, or do you think that tea plantations now are immune because of the way that they're growing the tea? Well, well, it is an agricultural product, so you're always it's always going to coexist with the weeds and the bugs and and, and the birds of the air. You know, uh, the people who have who have made the most interesting discoveries in in crop management, I suppose you should say, are the people who are into organic farming. I have a friend in Darjeeling who grows, uh, who has not used pesticide, herbicide, or anything of the sort, oh, in 30 years or more. Wow, that's great. And uh, he now has, uh, he now has no insect problems, whatever, uh, his ground is much more uh, fertile and productive. I mean, it, it's it's a wonderful story. So I think this is really the direction of the future, organic farming. I wanted to ask you about Thomas Lipton. I thought it was fascinating that he was one of the fathers of modern advertising in his innovative retailing and promotional work, and that he really brought tea to the modern world. In a way, you can certainly say that. He's the, he was the most successful of the mass marketers. Uh, absolutely. That's the reason that we've all heard his name. And uh, he was an advertising genius. He, was, uh, he, he thought about self-promotion from morning till night. And that's another reason we've all heard his name. Now, he must have been a charming fellow, never married, loved Loved yachting. That was his hobby. Uh, uh, he was a Scotsman, never lost his accent, even though he was a friend of the King Edward VII, Edward VIII, whatever Edward it was, who was the son of Victoria. And uh, he was snubbed by his, uh, by his fellow yachtsmen, who didn't want him to be a member of the club that they belonged to. Why? Uh, well, he was not—he uh, was not an aristocrat. He was uh, when the Kaiser of Germany was there for a meet England at this yacht club, and he knew that the King of England had gone off with his friend Thomas Lipton. Uh, you know, I don't know whether they were sailing or stepped out for a drink, but somebody asked the Kaiser, "Where is the King?" And he said, "They tell me he." is with his grocer. <laughs> so you can imagine the, the, the class uh, uh, clash that, that would have occurred. And that yachts club, even though 
Sir Thomas Lipton carried the colors and raced for the America's Cup five different times. Uh, they never allowed him membership until actually the last year of his death, uh, the last year of his life. Uh, uh, they invited him to, to come to the club. And Sir Thomas, at this point, I don't know whether it didn't matter anymore to him or whether he just thought too little too late. But he sent back a note with his regrets. He was knighted by Queen Victoria. That's right. At the insistence of uh, uh, Victoria's son, Edward, his friend. Got it. Wow. He was, he was the most successful uh, uh, grocer in England in his generation. So he already had a chain of shops before ever he went into the tea business. Now, tea shops did not exist before 1884. That's right. Why? Isn't that strange to think? Because nobody today probably thinks of England without tea shops. They're usually synonymous. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Isn't it, isn't it strange? Uh, uh, well, several things were going on. For one thing, tea was still too expensive for the working class to just stop off for a cup of tea anywhere, you see. Uh, it would have been very much a middle-class amenity. And the middle class in Victoria's time spoke only to one another, if you think about it. So all of those, all of those Victorian teas, which we still like to imitate, uh, you know, it has to do with very good linen and china and so forth, and you can be very fussy about a Victorian tea. And it always happened in the drawing room at home. You didn't go out for that. You invited people to come to see you. So it was only once tea had be, began to be reachable for all, and once it was not subject to all of the social surroundings, that they somebody began serving tea in the back of a bakery near London Bridge. And that became so popular that soon that bakery had to open branch offices, and that was the first British chain of tea shops. How interesting. One of the things that's kind of shocked me in reading your book was the taxes that were on these teas, almost the same amount of money for the tea you'd pay in taxes sometimes. Yes, amazing. Share a little bit about that, and then when the tax went away. Well, the tax started just about as soon as the tea market did. England, that's in the 1600s, late 1600s, and the taxes never came down. The taxes went up and up, and you remember that unfortunate incident in Boston. The Boston Tea Party. Or uh, had something to do with <laughs> British taxes on tea, didn't it? Yes, indeed. Well, it was only after the mother country had lost her American colonies that sanity finally surfaced, and the head of the British tea dealers, who had another famous name, his name is Twining, Mr. Richard Twining was able to persuade the government to just kill the taxes on tea. Do you know what they really killed? They killed the smuggling industry. As long as you were charging almost 100%, tax on top of whatever the tea cost, you see, why it was 
money if you had a boat and knew how to sail over to Holland where you could buy all this tea for export with no taxes, bring it back to England in the dark of the moon, smuggle it ashore, and then sell it here or there and uh, pocket the proceeds. Everybody was willing to uh, to buy tea at a, at a huge discount, and indeed, that's what made tea popular all over England. It wasn't the East India Company. It was their illegal competitors, the smugglers. Very interesting. Yes, all of this. And when you go into the detail and you begin to read the stories of the smugglers, or for that matter, uh, uh, the India company uh, managers, it, it takes on a very human dimension. For instance, the East India Company was always looking for uh, for chaplains for their ships, but the chaplain had to be willing to see the men go ahead and sell opium in China on a Sunday, you see. <laughs> it's fascinating, and yet the smugglers had to do what they did in order to create a competitive marketplace for tea coming into the social societies. Have you ever heard that, uh, have you ever heard of or read that Daphne du Maurier novel called Jamaica Inn? No. It's about tea smugglers at this same period. That would be a great book to read. Yeah, Daphne du Maurier is great in any case, but uh, that interested me particularly because of the of the subject you said in your book that one-third, or 30,000 tons of all U.S. tea imports consist of inferior machine-harvested tea from Argentina, grown for U.S. mass markets, tea bags, and in some instant tea mixes. Yes. And that's what we're used to, probably. That's right. This is the lowest of the low. The lowest of the low, Kim. And that represents today something like half of all the tea that we import. So when you go to buy one of those 100 tea bags in the box uh, specials at your neighboring supermarket, uh, uh, probably half of the tea dust that's in that tea bag that you're buying will be this stuff from Argentina. It is utterly tasteless. I'm sure it has some health benefits for you, and it does have color, but that's about all it's got. They have to blend it with teas from elsewhere so it'll have any flavor at all, but it's the world's cheapest. That's why our big companies like to use it. What is your take on tannin and whether it's good for you or bad for you? I hear that tannin is very acidic. Well, tannin is the old word for, <coughs> for polyphenols. The polyphenol content of tea is what gives it its healthful properties. So polyphenols is the new word for tannin. Yes, that's right. Interesting. Yeah, it turns out tannin was never the right word at all. Tannin, properly speaking, is found in the, uh, in the bark of oak trees, for instance, and you can use it to tan uh, leather. See, there's no, no chemical like that anywhere in tea leaf. But they didn't know this 200 years ago. And when they saw what color it was and how it made your mouth puckery, they said, oh, tannins, tannins. And so thus we still speak of tea tannins. To be scientific, we should, what we mean is, what we should say is tea polyphenols. 
or now that we know that these polyphenols work benefit our bodies by by taking all the free radicals out of us keeping us from rusting out see they are antioxidants so you could call a polyphenol an antioxidant and i suppose its mother wouldn't be (laughs) (laughs) you have named dragon well and all these different teas these very high level teas in your book where do we go to purchase some of the really wonderful, high-level, good, healthy teas that you mention in the new Tea Lover's Treasury? I'm speaking to you from San Francisco, so I can best describe the California market, perhaps. If I were going to, if I were in Los Angeles, I would look for one of the four Chado locations. Uh, uh, If I were in Berkeley, I would go to Taon. Uh, if I were in the middle of the country, I would look for for a mail order house like Harney and Sons or Upton Tea Imports. So all of the all of the reputable tea dealers now are going to have some some pretty good green teas. And if you're lucky, or else if you're careful, you can find the ones that have the unbelievably good green and oolong teas. I've never tasted the kind of green teas you're talking about. I am a shadow customer, which is how I found out about you. And I have had what's called Marissa's tea. That was really good. (laughs) Well, start your explorations going to the dragon well that they have. And remember what I told you about using less than boiling water to steep it. I'm looking at a Chado tea right now that I dearly love, a China green tea called Luan Guapian. Luan is the county that it comes from, and Guapian is the name. It means melon slice. And this is a very ancient green tea which is just superb. There is no bad Luan Guapian. And there are a lot of others. I'm looking at another bamboo leaf green tea from M.A. Mountain. Uh, Once you enter that world, you're going to just try one after another, and you've got a long way to go, Kim, because there must be 10,000 of these green teas. (laughs) I better order my days quickly. Yes. It is that German tea costs seven times more than England's tea and that it's better. Why? Well, the Germans are, if you'll allow the expression, Nazis for quality. <laughs> uh, they are very fond of the very best and are willing to pay, even though they consume about seven times less tea than the British do, they pay seven times more for it. So the actual market value of the tea trade in Germany is greater than in England. Very Surprising. It surprised me to find that out. It surprised me, too. I have one last question for you. Lu Yu used to be known as the priest of tea. And there was a gentleman named Moose Ashi who really brought the tea importance in his book, The Book of Tea. Mm-hmm. And he also wrote The Book of Five Rings. But Musashi was the great Japanese samurai. 
And his Book of Five Rings is not to be confused with the Book of Tea by another Japanese who wrote a hundred years later. And he wrote it in this country, the Book of Tea. His name was Okakura. So the Book of Tea, which is the best-selling work on the subject, it's, I think, more philosophical than a buyer's guide, and certainly, but there's a lot of history in there, and there's a ton of charm. Uh, uh, that must be the chap you're thinking about. That's it. And uh, that book of tea, when you think about it, which would have appeared about 100 years ago, was just in the line of succession from Lu Yu, the Chinese chap who wrote the first book of tea. Have you read all these books? You know, I have not. A lot, most of the most of them have never been translated from Chinese. But I've read I've read the greatest hits, Kim, and I'm proud to say that I'm in that tradition. I must be around a hundred to a hundred and fifty down the line, you see. But there've been at least a hundred major books of tea in Chinese alone since Lu Yu wrote a thousand years ago. How long did it take you to complete the definitive tea dictionary? Well, of course, I had been I had been learning that for 25 years when I started, and a mere five years' work polished it off. The tea dictionary is naming all the different types of teas and explaining what they're about. Yes, yes, that's a huge it is, job. <laughs> it is meant to be the handbook and guide to the trade. It is tea trade terminology for cultivation, manufacture, tasting, trading, marketing, and classification. And, of course, I have maps and charts and everything else. How wonderful. How many tea houses are there in the U.S. now, approximately? The last time I counted, it was on the order of 2,000. And when I first took an interest in tea, you could never have found 200 so that's a big jump. We, the new tea lovers, are making our mark felt. You and I are not alone. Do you think that there will be many, many more in-demand tea houses? And do you also think there's money in having a tea house? I'm sure that's not why people begin it. No, no. You go into the, if you want to go into this business, it's because you love it. And then if you... If you have a good business head, you can figure out how to make a living at it. It sounds like it would be a great office to meet people, to sit down with them, to have tea, to receive people. That's right. That's right. And a lot of people go into the business not so much to make money as for the romance and the friendship and the, and all of these elements that, that go along with tea. And if you can... And, that's perfectly legitimate, I've always thought. I'm very enamored with the new Tea Lovers Treasury, and I really want to thank you for joining us today. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Well, I think you should tell people that if they are interested in acquiring that book that you praise so highly, they should email me. I'm, uh, I can be reached through my website, which is James Norwood Pratt Tea Society. You're also at jamesnorwoodpratt.com, correct? That's right. These are conversations just like sharing tea itself, which I 
can never get enough of. And so I would encourage uh, one and all to let me hear from them. And, and let's carry on just the way you and I have, Kim. Norwood Pratt, thank you so much for being with us. I enjoyed it.